Welcome to this episode of TechLink in Conversation. I'm Eddie Grant, a director at Technical Connection. During our conversations, we seek to review the topical bulletins published on TechLink, our knowledge management tool for all things tax, trusts, pension, and much, much more. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Barbara Gardner, who leads the Technical Connections project on all aspects of the design and maintenance of trusts and trust-based strategies. Hello, Barbara, how are you? Hello, Eddie, good to see you. I'm very well, thanks, and how are you? Yeah, all great, thank you, all great. Thank you for sparing the time uh, to be with us today. Um, I know we're going to look at a subject that we've we've spoken an awful lot about on, on TetLink uh, in relation to trust and uh, the clarification of trust registration service. Could you just explain to us what this TRS is and why it's so topical, please? Sure. Well, um, as you say, TRS stands for the Trust Registration Service, and this is an online service that trustees need to use to register their trust with uh, HMRC. Now, it's nothing new that the trustees, as generally they would be a taxpayer in most cases, need to have contact with uh, HMRC. Now, until not long ago, trustees would have registered by using a paper form, Form 41G Trust. And if you go back much further, it used to be a requirement to actually send a complete trust document to HMRC. Of course, that would have been far too much for HMRC. Anyway, in 2017, rules changed following the introduction of the money laundering, terrorist financing and transfer of funds information on the payer regulations 2017, which came in force in, uh, in June 2017. And that was partly to digitalize the system of registration of trust, as you know, and everybody knows just about everything has to these days happen digitally and online. And secondly, to fulfill UK's obligations under uh, the fourth money laundering directive. And of course, although the title is money laundering, terrorist financing, it's all about anti-money laundering and anti and the rules to combat um, money laundering and terrorist financing. Uh, so from June 2017, all trusts that had tax liabilities, what we used to call taxable trusts, had to register with HMRC using an online service, this TRS service. And uh, so it, it's in a sense, the TRS is nothing new because it's been going on for over four years now. Now, what happened later, and that is last year, was that the regulations were extended to include trusts which up to now have not had to register because they've not had any tax liabilities. So we had another piece of legislation which amended the 2017 regulations, and this was another set of money laundering regulations which came into effect last uh, September. And uh, under these regulations, all trusts basically now, except those that are specifically excluded, need to register. This is to comply with the fifth money 
laundering directive, which basically requires details of the beneficial owners of trust structures to be disclosed. And I should add that uh, that's despite Brexit or regardless of Brexit, UK is committed to comply with the international obligations to, to combat money laundering. So, so that's what we've got. And uh, it's topical because last September, the system for registration on non-taxable trusts came into uh, effect. It was supposed to happen last March, but of course, as usual, there were IT problems with, with the new system. So the new system went live in September and all existing trusts, except the trusts that are specifically excluded, now have 12 months to register. So this is why it's topical because all of a sudden we have a deadline, so people are talking about it and have to consider which trust do, which trust don't, what does it involve, etc. So I'm uh, if if I'm an advisor, obviously this is this is uh, first of all is a deadline, and deadlines are always great for uh, conversations with clients. But but it sounds it feels definitely like. Um, there's a lot of work to do. Um, so in financial services, then we do a lot of trusts. Which trusts then will be uh, required to register? And and you mentioned some exempt trusts. Which which ones are those? Right. Well, financial services. I think advisors are particularly affected because uh, the sort of trusts they mostly have used with financial services products, and specifically bonds, up to now have not had to have much to do with HMRC because in most cases either there would be no tax liabilities or tax liabilities would be on the settler. Well, this is where the, the biggest change actually has happened. Now, ignoring the, the trusts that already would have had a requirement to register and tax liabilities such as any trusts holding, for example, collectives, unit trust investments that already produce um, income that is subject to tax that, that would have had this obligation to register. The, the main products that are um, in focus now are life insurance bonds, capital redemption policies, and generally speaking, life insurance. Up to now, and we used to say one of the advantages of life bonds used to be the minimum admin that was involved and yeah. lack of need to basically deal with and revenue, lack of need of of, of having to, to register. As long as the settler of a trust holding a life policy, uh, such as investment bond, uh, was alive and UK resident, that trustees would never have any tax liabilities. So in practice, very rarely the would be the case where trustees would have tax liabilities. Well, this is where it's all changed because all kind of trusts holding investment bonds, so that would be ordinary gift trusts, which would have been pre-2006 flexible trusts, even absolute trusts, discretionary trusts, discounted gift trusts, loan trusts, all these trusts that never had to register or have any dealings with HMRC now basically will be subject to, to the requirement to register. So that is really the biggest change that affects financial advisors. Now, 
interesting point about life insurance policies generally, because uh, life insurance policies, which are protection policies, basically provide for payment of benefits on death or serious illness. These are excluded from registration. So if you're talking about life policy trust, but the policy actually is a just protection policy, this trust will not have to register. And uh, I should add that there has been some confusion because unfortunately, ever since the regulations were published last September, there have been changes and there have been all sorts of guidelines from HMRC, not necessarily very clear and sometimes confusing in relation to life policy trusts. We should add that for a while, HMRC guidelines were that it was only policies that never had surrender values that would be excluded and everything else would have to register. Then they clarified that, in fact, if you look at the legislation, the fact that the policy may have surrender value does not preclude it from being an excluded trust of policy. So then, of course, the question was, ha, what about other type of policies that have surrender values, such as investment plans? So there was a need for HMRC to clarify, no, 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 no. These, of course, are caught. So it's only policies that that are basically protection. So it's, as I said, death benefit, serious illness, and uh, terminal illness, critical illness, uh, disability, permanent disablement of the life assured, or to meet healthcare costs. These this policy trusts are excluded. Furthermore, if there is a payment of benefit under such policy, so usually on death or terminal illness or, or critical illness, if it's still in trust, it can remain in the trust for two years from the death or the event during which there is no need to register. But after two years, if the funds remain in the trust, so say a life insurance dies and the trustees decide they're not going to be paying out the proceeds straight away, for example, because the beneficiaries are minor children and, and there is no need to pay out the benefits straight away, then they have two years. And if the funds are invested and two years from the death or, or, or whichever event, uh, there will be a need to register the trust in the same way as, as any other trust. Now, there, there's a whole list of trusts which are excluded, and I would recommend that advisors actually look at the list. Uh, principally, things like charitable trusts, pension trusts don't have to register. Uh, there are certain rules with trusts arising on death, so then you'll be looking at existing trusts uh, for example, that were created in a will, there will be a question whether they need to register. And generally, they would have two years again to, to decide whether to distribute funds or do anything else. If they still there two years after that, they will generally have to register. Trusts that are created uh, by statute, for example, on intestacy in England and Wales, uh, trusts for bearded minors, on death of a parent where, they, where there is a minor beneficiary, they don't have to register either. And, and certain other categories that we come across less often. There are a couple of categories that I, I, I should mention, which may or may not involve uh, uh, financial products. And that is uh, property or accounts that are owned in somebody else's name. 
Uh, we've been rather disappointed so far that absolute trust or if you call bare trusts or nominiships are not excluded from registration, especially given the fact that the, the purpose of the regulations is to uh, fight money laundering. And, you know, you've got lots of accounts set up for minor children by grandparents or, or whoever, small amounts. As things stand now at the moment, they are not excluded. Now, initially, according to the regulations, all nominee accounts, including banks accounts for children, for example, were within the category that had to register. However, HMRC, it seems, have seen the light a little bit and they have already announced that bank accounts for minor children, which in effect are trust accounts because it's one person holding account for the benefit of, of another of the minor beneficiary. Now, those accounts will not have to register. Now, maybe, maybe they will extend it to other nominee accounts for minor children. At the moment, we are still waiting for draft regulations because uh, there will have to be regulations to amend the existing regulations to actually implement the changes in the dates, etc. And HMRC have already indicated they're looking uh, at, at other uh, changes, including healthcare insurance. So, so who knows when we have these regulations? Of course, parliamentary time permitting, and we haven't seen yet what exactly is going to be. So things might still change a little bit, but uh, at the moment, that's the way it, things look. One other point I need to mention in relation also to um, plans that are relevant to financial advisors are the so-called pilot trusts. Sometimes they're called asset preservation trusts or asset protection trusts. Basically trusts that are created with a nominal amount or even a covenant to pay a nominal amount um, as, as a receptacle basically to receive funds in due course. Generally such trusts are used to uh, wait to see basically if a lump sum under a pension scheme should go into a trust or not. So very often uh, advisor would recommend to clients who are taking out pension plans or who may already have pension plans to have such a pilot trust so that should the need arise, because it's not always the case that you need to have such a trust. However, it's useful to have such a trust because in the event that the trust is useful, and in many cases it will be, then the trustees of from pension scheme can make the lump sum to this existing trust. And then the trustees that have been appointed by the client can look after the funds and decide who should be receiving benefits rather than the benefits going directly to individuals, uh, which, which may not always be appropriate. Now, there is a rule in relation to this pilot trust, which, which doesn't really make much logical sense, but there you are, it's not the first time. And uh, basically, if such a trust was created before 6th of October last year, 2020, and the value in the trust fund does not exceed £100, then there is no need to register this trust. However, if the trust has been created since 6th of October last year, even if no further assets are ever added to such a trust, 
then it still needs to register with HMRC. So it's, it's a bit of a pain in the neck. It's going to cause all sorts of problems, bureaucratic problems for HMRC, because why on earth they would want to have records of trusts that will potentially never hold any assets. But anyway, that's the regulations as they stand at the moment. So that's something to keep in mind. And it's, <clears throat> so it feels like there's uh, there's a lot to do. Um, if I want to uh, register one of these trusts, if I have to register one of these trusts, uh, what do I need to do? How do I actually do that? And what information does HMRC want from me? Right. Well, as I said, it's all done online. And if you have a trust, well, you will have usually one or more trustees. The responsibility for registration is with the trustees. If there is more than one trustee, they need to appoint a lead trustee to complete the registration and be the main contact with HMRC. Alternatively, trustees may appoint an agent, usually will be accountant, but of course they will charge fees. They can do this on, on their behalf. Now, the, you access the online registration online via the website. Uh, the one point to remember is that before you can register, you need to have a UK government gateway account and have your unique taxpayer reference number and each trust has to have a separate number and so if you have client has a separate trust there need to be a separate account for each trust even if set foreign trustees are, are the same people so this is how it's done now how much information needs to be provided that depends on the type of trust, namely whether it is a taxable trust or not taxable trust. As you can imagine, a lot more information will be required for trusts that actually have tax liabilities. Um, if you go back to the principal reason for this, i.e. the need to disclose details of the beneficial owners of trusts, now this is the clue what needs to be disclosed. At the moment, we are more concerned with the uh, registration of non-taxable uh, trusts because this is the big job for advisors and for clients with existing trusts. And by the way, there are widely differing estimates on, on, on how many of these trusts will have to register. It could be hundreds of thousands and people are quoting one or two or three million. So, you know, it's it's going to be quite a big job to keep up with all of this. Um, details of beneficial owners which are required are not so massive, actually. Basically, for the purpose of registration of non-taxpaying trusts, all you need is full name, date of birth, and country of residence and country of nationality, right? Uh, the, the tricky bit is to remember who are the so-called beneficial owners for this purpose, because any person involved with trust business will assume that beneficial owners would mean actual beneficiaries of the trusts. However, that's not the case, and it may be something to do with the way directives are worded in Europe, which, of course, is not familiar necessarily with, with the concept of trust as we know it in, in Anglo-Saxon jurisdictions. But 
for the purpose of the regulations, beneficial owner includes not just the beneficiaries of the trust, but also the settlor, the trustees, any other person who, I mean, the wording refers to controllers, which any person who basically has some control over the trust, he could be protector, or if a person is named to uh, have a power of veto or power to appoint beneficiaries. So all those individuals, if they are named, then the information about those has to be disclosed. If there are classes of beneficiaries, for example, such as under the discretionary trust, they can just be described as a class. Now, there, because you have to name the person who has basically the principal contact with HMRC, that would be somebody called the lead trustee. Trustees have to appoint someone like that. So the lead trustee will have to disclose more information about himself, which would include uh, name as well as name and address, uh, email address, phone number, national insurance number, or if national insurance number not available, then passport or ID card details to identify the trustees. And actually HMRC will be checking those details with their own database and you got like, you know, three goes and after two, if you get it wrong, then you may have to provide further information. So, uh, so that's how it works. If you've got a taxable trust, then you'll have to provide the more specific information about every individual, which would be address and NI number, etc., which is not required when the trust is not taxable. Uh, for taxable trust, you also have to provide details of the trust assets. For So if it's not taxable trust, you don't have to mention what actually is contained in the trust. Also, you have to say when the trust was created, the name of the trust, just basic information. So in principle, for non-taxable trust, the amount of information is not massive. And, and maybe once we get used to this, it's going to be a question of you know 15 minutes affair going online and just uploading this information you know, possibly for all those existing trusts, the information may not always be necessarily available. Although, having said that, it's trustee's job really to, to keep up to date with having information about beneficiaries and trustees of a trust, so it really should be available. Uh, there is one, one sort of peculiar question, perhaps, which is to do with the uh, mental capacity of the individuals concerned, which there is also a question about uh, that in relation to each individual. And it is assumed there is, and you know, it's not that anybody will have to go and check on all the individuals concerned. And the reason for this is simple. Basically, the reason is that HMRC will not disclose any information about individuals who have uh, restricted capacity or minor beneficiaries, because that's another thing about this, this register is that certain bodies and certain entities are entitled to ask for information that is stored on, on HMRC register. That's generally to do with anybody investigating money laundering, criminal activities, etc. But uh, so basically, the, if, if beneficial owners are minors or, or have no capacity, HMRC will not disclose any such information. So I was um, so I was reading uh, in terms of the sort of deadlines. Am I am I right in thinking that um, you have to register by is it the first of September, twenty twenty two? Is is the deadline and um, 
and that's for existing trusts. So what happens with new trusts if I set one up tomorrow? Right. Well, you're right that the deadline for existing trust is uh, 1st of September 22. And again, there was a lot of confusion with HMRC posting all sorts of strange wording. Uh, basically, without getting involved with all these confusing deadlines, the rules are that the deadline is 20 is, is 1st of September 22 or 90 days from the trust creation, whichever is later. So uh, if you create trust today, right, you've got until 1st of September 22. But you can do it now if you want to, because the system is available, right? If you set up a trust in August 22, then you will have 90 days. Right, because it will be the later of 1st of September or 90 days. If you set up a trust after 1st of September, it will always be 90 days. And again, the legislation as it stands at the moment still refers to 30 days and the uh, regulations refer to the end of March 21 and uh, 22 and ignore all this. Right. So all you need to remember is 1st of September 22 or 90 days, whichever is the later. Uh, for taxable trust, it's at the moment is 90 days from any tax liability arising. There were all sorts of deadlines before when the trust had to register or the 1st of September, because by 1st of September 22, basically all the trusts, except those created within 90 days, will have been registered or they should be registered by then. Now, we hope that people will not leave it until the last minute. So in terms of um, responsibility, so like all trusts, the trustees, I'm assuming, have that responsibility to register the trust. What happens if they if they they don't register the trust uh, on the trustee registration service? Well, it's a good question, but in some respects, it's a question like, um, well, what if we don't tell HMRC that we've got some income or capital gains? So. Uh, it, we, we really have to look at you know, this, these other rules and this is what you do. In practical terms, there are two consequences. First of all, uh, regulations allow HMRC to impose fines. So, uh, obviously, at some point, HMRC is likely to find out about a trust, whether somebody dies, uh, there will be a tax liability, uh, somebody will need to disclose income or whatever happens, right? So uh, if the HMRC finds out in the first instance, at the moment they indicated they will basically issue a nudge letter, so they will not go after trustees with guns blazing, etc. But in due course, if what they call there is a deliberate failure there will be fines for the trustees. And of course, it's something to be avoided because if trustees hold an investment bond, where they're going to find the money? And furthermore, there will be their responsibilities, so they will not be able to use trust funds to pay any fines. So it's not something to, to recommend. Secondly, basically from next year, once the register is up and running, um, any financial institution that transacts business with trustees. So, for example, trustees of an existing trust want to 
uh, invest with the uh, insurance company or any other investment company, or if they deal with the uh, solicitor accountants, basically any any kind of entity like that, they will be asked to produce a proof of registration. Now that would normally be a PDF copy of the extract from the register with a registration number. Otherwise, the said investment company, insurance company, will not be able to offer them the services because that, that's the other side of the coin in essence. The insurance companies, investment companies, as part of the um, money laundering due diligence procedures are obliged to ask these questions and are obliged to ask for details of registration whenever they enter into relationship with the trustees. So these are the basically two consequences. That's really interesting. So to me, it feels like there's there's lots to think about. If I'm an advisor, there's lots to think about. There's lots of conversations I should be having with my my clients who are trustees um, and, and and also there's there's things to, to, to build into my process as well so um, and we always like to leave uh, listeners with with some takeaways um, so what would you say are the sort of three key key actions that I should be doing if I was a, an advisor with clients who are going to be uh, caught by these changes? Right. Well, well, first of all, I, I need to emphasize that trusts are essential part of estate planning. So whether you have clients with existing trusts or you're talking to clients about anything else, whether it's estate, whether it's pensions, whether it's investments, you need to talk to them about trust because you basically can't avoid it. So that's the first point. The second point is that the, the TRS, the subject of TRS, needs to be discussed with clients. Now, whether you have existing trust client or any other client, they may have a trust which you may not be aware of. So you may be talking to clients about their pension, but you need to mention this. Now, do you have any trust? Are you trustee of an existing trust? Uh, now, this is something that's happening. And thirdly, don't delay it until next August. Right now, we're coming to the year end. Advisors in particular will be busy with all sorts of issues and business. So this is perhaps not something that you'll be looking at. I oh, must get on and do it straight away. But please do not delay it to to next summer because by then, if you read, you haven't discussed it and if the trustees haven't done it, it might get just be stuck in a queue for for a while. And and who knows? As I said, there is an awful lot of uh, of this trust that will need to register. And besides, all good advisors from time to time will be reviewing the uh, investments of the trust clients. So whenever that happens between now and, and next September, this is a topic to be raised with uh, clients. So these are my, my three points to take away. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Barbara. Um, I, I mean, this is such a key subject and I'm sure we'll we'll come back to it. Um, so I think for advisors, it's one 
definitely I, the lot that your last action about don't delay I think is without doubt what one of the most important ones because what you don't want to be doing is is trying to do a lot of work right at the end um and uh, and then neglect your your other clients who who also need to see you um so really appreciate your your time today and and it's always great to catch up barbara thank you so much thank you everyone for listening and uh, hope to catch up with you soon thank you the content of this recording is strictly for general consideration only no action must be taken or refrained from based on the content alone Professional advice must always be sought. Accordingly, neither Technical Connection Limited nor any of its officers, employees or contractors can take responsibility for any loss occasioned as a result of any such action or inaction.